All right. Well, this morning I want to spend some time uh, addressing a topic that I don't think gets a lot of attention um, these days in the Christian church, uh, but something that I think about quite often in the ministry of discipleship uh, and counseling, and that is the subject of the conscience, uh, an important part of our our inner life uh, as believers, uh, something that is connected to so many things in our walk. Christ, uh, our relationships with others, and our daily lives. Uh, as most of you know, the Bible teaches that as human beings, we are, we, we call it a, a psychosom, for a big term, psychosomatic unity, or a body-soul unity, a duplexity. Uh, that is to say there are two con- constituent aspects of our nature. We are body and we are soul. We are, as Paul says in inner man, material and and immaterial. That is how the Lord has has made us. He has created us. Genesis 1 tells us in his own image, uh, entailing a bodily element suitable for this earthly existence, uh, prefiguring Christ's incarnation, uh, and also entailing a spiritual element, a soul, a spirit, with conscious self-awareness that is capable of communing with God. So God made man, unlike other creatures that God spoke into existence, he made man to reflect his moral character, to represent God by ruling on earth and over those other creatures, uh, i.e. exercising dominion uh, and relating to God through human language or a knowledge of God's attributes, God's works, his acts, through loving worship and willful, willful obedience. And so you and I have a physical body, um, and we have an immaterial soul, uh, equally honorable, uh, equally essential to our humanity, both affected by sin and redeemed and part of our future uh, glorification. And when it comes to that non-physical aspect, there are numerous ways in which the Bible refers to uh, and, and describes it, uh, the soul mentioned, or the, the spirit of man. Uh, sometimes the scriptures uh, refer to man in this immaterial way as simply the mind of man. And so there's a lot of emphasis actually on and the planning and the desiring, the affections of man. We have this term uh, that we use a lot in counseling. Uh, it's it's, the, it's sort of the, the catch-all, if you will, maybe term of the scriptures, uh, Old Testament and New Testament, this term heart, the heart of man. Uh, it's one of the most comprehensive terms used in the scriptures. You, in the in New American Standard uh, translation, it's used over 800 times to speak about that immaterial aspect. Uh, biblically speaking, the heart is mission control in your life. Uh, it is the source. It is uh, The scriptures describe the heart as the fountainhead of your behavior. Jesus talked about this in the Gospels. We have a couple places where Jesus speaks about those things that are flowing out of the heart. Man speaks out of the heart. Uh, adulteries, fornication, slanders, where do these things come from? They come from the heart of man. And so it's this, this heart is described as, as the source of your behavior, and it is the initiator of all moral action, which is mediated through the body. So we have desires, we have thoughts, we, we, we determine things, we, we, we make choices and then we carry out those things in through our outer man, right? So you got up this morning, there was outer man, inner man, and you had desires and, and values and priorities going on in the heart, but those things carried you somewhere, right? They brought you here, right? But to get here, you had to have the outer man, right? So hopefully your outer man is not here and your inner man is, not, is absent or vice versa, but you're, you're both here because you're a unity, but you had a desire to be so do something, and then you employed the members, those various sort of material faculties to get you to church today. And so the scriptures present us sort of in this way. Um, and so what we want to do this morning, we're, we're looking particularly at this interior life of, of a person, uh, the soul uh, and its various faculties. Uh, you have the understanding, uh, you have the will. And then you have this area of the conscience. Uh, I came across this uh, interesting quote from Richard Sibb, taken from his exposition of 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, Sibs was a 17th century uh, Anglican theologian, and he commented on this passage. Remember that Paul penned 2 Corinthians on the heels of a very difficult situation with the church at Corinth. You guys, I think, have been studying Corinthians into 2 Corinthians, but Paul clearly had a great relationship, great love, a great affection for this, this church, wanted to see them grow in the Lord, and yet what Paul was dealing with when he wrote 2 Corinthians is the, this situation where these sort of self-styled false apostles came into the church when Paul was absent, and they started assaulting Paul's character, sort of driving a wedge between the apostle and this particular congregation. And so in 2 Corinthians, this is a heart, the very heartbreaking thing for, for Paul um, to deal with, and yet... He's taking joy in the fact that the Lord has been working. He wrote a severe letter to them in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Did not get a great response from the church. But at this point, the church is beginning to change. The relationship is beginning to be mended. The teachers are beginning to be dealt with and called out. Paul's essentially in 2nd Corinthians defending his apostleship. And one of the things that he emphasized about that is here in verse 12, 2 Corinthians 1.12. He says, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. So Paul's basically just saying, here's my joy. My joy is the fact that when we were among you, we acted and conducted ourselves in a certain way. God knows how we acted. You know how we acted. And so you as an observer and God as an observer, and you know what? Even the world observing the situation, I have a conscience that testifies to the way we've conducted ourselves. And so Sibs, what Richard Sibs does here is he, he, he's just extensively writing on this whole section And he comes to this verse, but in his comments, this is what he says. Turn this on here. He says, what is our life without joy? Without joy, we can do nothing. We are like an instrument out of tune. An instrument out of tune, it yields but harsh music. Without joy, we are as a member out of joint. And then notice what he says. We can do nothing well without joy and a good conscience which is the ground of joy. So that, that, that to me is a very curious statement. First, that we can do nothing well. And it's a pretty strong statement. We can do nothing well. We cannot study well. We cannot work well. We cannot submit well. We cannot evangelize well. We cannot serve. We cannot love. We cannot suffer well without joy. And second, that the ground, that he, this is where he locates this. The ground of our joy is a good conscience. So that got me to thinking. I meet people every week that are looking for peace and joy. But here's the challenge. They don't understand the connection between these qualities and the condition of their consciences. They lack peace, they lack lasting joy, but many of them are quick to place the blame for that at the feet of others. They are quick to blame God, they are quick to assume that circumstances dictate their emotional state. If they do happen to look within, they might recognize a conflict that exists. There may seem to be some kind of an of a, of a ethical tension uh, as if they have two egos that are in opposition to one another, one demanding some kind of standard, the other a, a factual order or force that fails to comply with the other ego. And they sometimes feel bad about that. They feel bad about this sort of like they kind of believe that there's certain things that they ought not to do or certain things that they should be doing, but they're not actually doing it. <laughs> and so they're kind of torn. They're kind of describing this, but but they're not doing the right thing with that, right? They're not actually responding to that in a, in a godly or a biblical way. They, they, they feel bad because of the conflict. They feel like they're not meeting up to standards, expectations, whether those are things put upon them by others or whether those things they've set up in their own hearts. 
But what about their solution? I mean, what, what do they actually do? Well, some people abandon the standard altogether that makes them feel guilty, right? So they're like, I'm just kind of feeling bad about this, you know, feeling guilty about this. So here's one solution. Let's just forget about the standard, right? I don't want to continue to feel this way. Or perhaps it, it's in some cases to uh, people attempt to pay for their, <clears throat> for their wrongdoing through self-effort. Or maybe it's some kind of ritualistic behavior. Uh, certainly a Christless atonement. Uh, they're just sort of, it's just sort of self-atoning, right? I mean, it's like I have a standard, I feel bad about it, and then they turn to a million things to try to reconcile that, that conflict within. What I'm suggesting is that th- their response will depend in a way on their understanding of the conscience. Uh, interestingly, the Old Testament didn't really develop any word for this. So when you search the Old Testament, you really don't find this, at least a term for conscience, uh, though we know that the concept is there in, in certain places. Man from the beginning has been aware of God's existence. Uh, even after Adam's rebellion in the garden, man has been reminded every day that God is, that he exists, that he is powerful, that he is faithful, and that he judges sin. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Uh, those who suppress such knowledge and try to erase God as the presupposition of their own existence, the Scripture says are fools for doing that. Uh, they deceive themselves, says Psalm chapter 10, verses 4 and following. And the Old Testament is certainly aware of this inner discord uh, in man when he refuses to live in harmony with God's revealed will. For example, in Genesis chapter 42, you remember... Jacob's sons, uh, after, after, after Jacob's sons had lied, after they had sold their brother Joseph into slavery, they had covered it up. Verse 21 of Genesis 42 says that even some 20 years after their crime, that they were ashamed of their actions. Verse 21 says this, Then they said to one another, the brothers, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother." Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, and yet we would not listen, therefore this distress has come upon us. 20 years later, David's heart at times smote him. He was bothered because of the sin that he had committed against the Lord. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 24. We see it in chapter 25. We see it in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Times when David, for instance, threw the spear at Saul, or when David... Uh, uh, conducted the census. There were these times when David did something and he was immediately gripped by the fact that he had sinned against the Lord. And David talks about that. We understand how David was sort of processing those things because we get a lot of the sort of the, if you will, the personal diary of David when you get to the Psalms, right? So you sort of see this, what's going on in the inner life, in his heart. He was troubled in heart in these seasons, And so the concept is there in the Old Testament, just not a distinct term for it, which may be why there is no use of the the Greek term for conscience in the four Gospels. Uh, That might be because of this Old Testament tradition that was carried, carried forward. But notably, when you get to the book of Acts and into the New Testament letters, we find a couple of terms. Uh, The first is uh, synoida, and it's used twice in the New Testament. Acts chapter 5, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. I think you might be familiar with the story, but he kept back, verse 2, some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. So he was doing something sinful, he was doing something secretive and wrong. He was not truthful in his heart, but it tells us here that he did this with his wife's full knowledge. That is this, this word that we're, we're talking about. It's the term synoida. It's the oida is the word, is the verb to know. Soon is the, is the word with, so it's with knowledge. So he did this with the, the shared knowledge of his wife. That's kind of the idea. So it's to know something, the term means to know something together or to share knowledge with. Uh, the idea here in verse 2 is, is obviously that some like a, a collusion. 
Ananias did something deceptive and wrong, and his wife knew it. The other passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's talking there about his own, his own ministry, and he says this, Let a man regard us in this manner, verse 1, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Verse 4, for I am conscious, that's our term here, for I am conscious of nothing myself. Uh, This is the NAS, but ESV says, for I am not aware of anything against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So notice, as we're just sort of trying to get our mind around what the Scriptures mean by the conscience, just notice some of the key ideas around this mention of conscience in 1 Corinthians 4. Examination. Okay, that, that, that's a key to what we're talking about. There's an examination. The issue of justification, or as it says here, acqu- acquittal, right? There's this issue of justification, and there is clearly this, this emphasis on the inner man, right, and motivations, because he's saying, listen, uh, people might think a certain thing about me, but they can't accurately know what's going on in my inner life. In fact, I've examined my own heart, but just because I don't, I'm not seeing something doesn't necessarily fully mean that I'm not guilty. It just means that I don't see it, right? So that's why we say, search my heart, O God, right? Because what we're saying is, I may be missing something. I could be self-deceived. I could be blind to something. Paul's just saying, I have searched. I'm not aware of anything that I've done that is sinful, but that does not mean that in the final assessment that I'm innocent because only the Lord really knows, right? I mean, we can keep things from each other. We can hide things, we can conceal things, but the Lord knows. And Paul's just saying, listen, ultimately I have to have this confidence that on that day, the Lord's going to reveal the true motives, right? And so he's just living, and this is what Paul's motivation. I want to live with that in view. That ultimately is the thing that drives me. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about this wanting to please the Lord, and he immediately goes to the judgment seat of Christ, right? And says, listen, I want to live in a way that when I stand before Christ at the judgment, that he approves of the way that I've lived. Whether people believe that or not is irrelevant, right? If, whether I believe that or not, that's irrelevant. What ultimately matters is that Christ himself approves of my life. So that is the term synoida. The more common term that we find, and we do so uh, 30 times. I don't have all the references. You'll have to just jot these down as we go through them. 30 times in the New Testament, and it is this term, synodesis. Uh, It's 14 times in letters, 16 times in the other New Testament writings. Uh, No less than 8 of 14 usages in Paul are concentrated on the issue of idle meats, found in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 10, which you have examined. My understanding is you've examined... Uh, those passages, those verses in this class uh, in previous months, dealing with the interactions between weaker and stronger believers. So Paul Paul talks there about those who are weak in conscience, those who are strong, and how they ought to relate to one another in the body body of Christ so that they can walk in unity and not be judgmental and and condemning. So he he gives them great great help in in those matters. But Eight of those 14 usages in, the, in Paul's writings are in that, that section alone, chapters 8 and 10 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the verse we looked at earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 also has this term where Paul mentioned the testimony of his conscience uh, and the conscience of those who labored alongside of him to serve the church at Corinth. Uh, let me give you a few of these other examples. Acts chapter 23, verse 1. This is Paul's defense before the Sanhedrin says, Paul, uh, Acts 23, 1, Paul looked intently at the council and said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Acts 24, verse 16, this is Paul before Felix. He says this, in, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless. Right? This is a term for stumbling. He's just saying, I, 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 I want to do my best to maintain a, uh, 
a conscience that does not falter, does not stumble both before God and before men. So he mentions in Acts 23 this having a good conscience before God. Here he adds to that that his, his goal has been to do that both before God and men. That's just to say this, folks. It's not as if we're concerned about what other people think, right? It's just we don't need to be more concerned about what other people think than what God thinks. So Paul just sort of like goes back and forth. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm living for, to, to, for God's approval. And then in another place, he's like, I'm living for God and man's approval, right? It's just that's fine so long as the emphasis isn't on man's approval. But sometimes, I mean, let's just be honest. I can, I can do something that is both pleasing to the Lord and others, right? I mean, that's what I'm trying to do, honestly. It's like <laughs> that's my goal is to try to, if I can bring those together, like if I can please another person while at the same time pleasing Christ, that's, that's like icing on the cake. Sometimes I have to please the Lord, and knowing I'm pleasing the Lord, I know it's not going to probably please a person. But what I definitely don't want to do is to make it my ultimate goal and priority to please people, right? Scripture explicitly warns against being a man pleaser, right? The fear of man. But Paul says here, listen, this has been my goal. I mean, I, I, I do want people to look at my life. I'm not trying to live in the corner somewhere and stay away from people and just say, well, God knows, you know, like it's all between me and God over here in secret. He's saying, no, listen, actually, it's the opposite. I want to live my life publicly. I want to be out there. I want to be hospitable. I want to open up my life. I want to invite people in because I want them to see that the way that I'm living is pleasing to the Lord. So he says before both God and before men. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, again, Paul's in the context of defending his apostleship here in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Again, notice the associating uh, sort of concepts uh, that you see in this verse, truth. So you have truth. We have this other passage. We had this issue of examination and this this uh, issue of justification in God's presence. Here, everybody has that right. Let's just go ahead and just everybody go take care of your take care of your Amber Alert. I'm not saying ignore it. I'm saying look at it. If you don't if you don't have any solutions for them, then just hit OK and we'll move on. We're going to come back. I'm, I'm going to work that into this lesson. I'll, I'll think, I'll, we're going to talk about alarms in just a minute. It's what, a, it's what the conscience is. It's an alarm system. I'm serious. I'm serious. We're going there. We're going there. You keep this in mind. You'll never you feel like, I remember that day. That thing went off. Thank you, Lord. Okay. So here, you have these, these concepts. Truth manifested and God's evaluating presence. Okay, truth, what's, what's been covered, what's been the scenes is being brought out, it's being manifested, and you have this issue of God's evaluating presence in your life. That's what Paul's saying is, listen, we lived out this, we weren't, we weren't trying to do things that were shameful, we were not walking in trickery, we weren't trying, he's just telling the church, I wasn't trying to take advantage of you. When I came in, I mean, this is how I just came. This is how I came. It's like I came. I came preaching the gospel. I came lifting up Christ. It wasn't about me. Again, you guys have talked about 1 Corinthians, the personality conflicts and all the, the loyalties going on there with Peter and Apollos and Paul. He's just saying, no, from the very beginning, this is, it's just been about Christ. It's been about what God is doing in, in saving people and in sanctifying people. And so there was, just, there was nothing to hide. He's just being very straightforward with the church and just saying, we're an open book. At the end of the day, though, this is what it comes down to. It comes down to what happens in the sight of God, right? And so what he's actually saying to them is, look at my life, think about God, think about what God requires, and then in your, in your own evaluation, what do you say about us? Like, does, is what we're saying about us, does it line up with what you saw? And that's all he's doing here. First Timothy chapter 1 is a great... Verse, but the goal of our instruction, Paul tells, Paul tells Timothy, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Profound statement. I use this in counseling all the time. It is so, so, I think, helpful for people. Paul says, 
That has to be the goal of ministry. That has to be the goal of our, of our, of our ministry, of every teaching ministry. That has always been the appointed end of our activity and all of our efforts. That you would love God and love others. That was the end point. The end point was that every time we came and every time we, we taught you something new, the ultimate goal was that you would love your neighbor and you would love the Lord supremely. That is our goal here today, right? I mean, this class, the one across the hall with the kids, youth, preaching, that's the, that's the goal of what we're doing. It's not just to gain some knowledge. It's not so you can feel better about yourself. It's not so that you can check some sort of religious box in your life, but that you would in love. That is the goal. But then here's the amazing thing that Paul adds. He says here, love springs forth from a three-pronged base, and one of those prongs is a good conscience. Think about that. If you are not living with a good conscience, not love, in fact, he says you cannot love as you ought. Why not? Because you're hiding. Because you're dodging. You're compromised. You'll sacrifice conviction for expediency. You will sacrifice principle for pragmatic solutions. Avoid people. You will use people. You will lie to them, but you will not love them if you do not have a good conscience. So this is the counseling because people are obviously, usually if they're coming in, if they're coming in some sort of relationship situation, especially say a marriage, they're not loving one another. That's usually the obvious thing is that your husband, you're not loving her. She's not loving you. But I'm saying it's, it's more than just saying, now go home and love each other because they can't if they don't have a good conscience. That's what Paul's saying. So if you're going to actually do this, you have to have a sincere faith, right? You have to have an inner life without hypocrisy. You've got to deal with the hypocrisy. You've got to have a good conscience, okay, before the Lord. And you have to have a sincere faith, a, a, genuine, a genuine entrustment of your life to the Lord's care and his goodness. Again, if you don't have those three things, you're, you're not going to love your neighbor. And who's your clo- in this case, if you have marriage, your closest neighbor is your spouse, you're not going to do it. So what you have to do is you have to just say, you don't just say you have to love each other. <laughs> you have to say, let's talk about this conscience thing. What is that and how do you get that? Because if you were to have a good conscience and you were to start trusting the Lord with your concerns and you were to deal with what's going on in your inner life, guess what would happen? You would love each other more. Right? So it's such a helpful text. Let's move on. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good desire to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Right? So how do you get through working for somebody? They're harsh. They, they, they seem to always be like putting up obstacles in your way. Like how, how could you admit to someone that you feel like is not being good and kind and, and not leading with the attitude Shane preached on last week with, with humility and a servant's heart? How do you, how do, you do that? Well, you, you, you make it your goal to have a good conscience. Right? For the sake of conscience toward God, you do it. It helps. He goes on and talks about in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation. <clears throat> do not be troubled. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, verse 16, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So what is here, this just is, that's what I'm saying. The application here is all over the place. You're in that, that again, those kind of situations, do it. You had a difficult week. You're going through a trial. You're dealing with affliction, or maybe it's for some form of persecution. How do you do this? You start focusing on having a good conscience. 
right? You don't get focused on the people that are making your life miserable and trying to change all these circumstances and blame others and those kinds of things. Even if you're being slandered, even if you're being just outright attacked, I mean, most of the, the, the assaults, the, the persecution, at least in the context of First Peter, came in the verbal form. So most of the examples that are given are, are, are their, 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 their words, their, their accusations, their slander, their lies, those kinds of things. Well, how, do you, how can you possibly do that and not just do it, but how do you respond with gentleness? It's like you're being attacked, and yet how do you respond with a softness is the, is the idea? Not returning evil for evil, not getting in the back and forth. How do you do that as a Christian? How do you... Sh- on Christ and his approval. What exactly are we really talking about here? What is the conscience? As I mentioned, it is a share, it's shared knowledge with ourselves. A shared knowledge with ourselves. Or Christopher Ashe in his book, Discovering the Joy of a Clear Conscience, says this. He just simply calls it a moral self-awareness. Uh, John MacArthur, in his, uh, his book, The uh, Vanishing Conscience, says this, The conscience is a human faculty that judges our actions and thoughts by the highest standard we perceive. So it's not the final authority. Your conscience is not the final authority. God is the ultimate authority. Scripture is the ultimate authority. It's not an infallible guide because it can be tweaked. It can be educated and conformed and shaped and calibrated. We'll talk about the need to, to calibrate our conscience in just a moment. So it's, it's not a final authority. It's not an infallible guide, but it is, it is the faculty of the soul engaged in moral judgment that deals with issues of right and wrong and good and bad. Your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Some would say that we're not just speaking about a knowledge we have that we share with ourselves, but with God. Or to state it differently, conscience is knowledge of us that God shares with us. J.I. Packer in his book, Quest for Godliness, says this, The conscience speaks with the voice of God, representing a shared knowledge that is really the deepest and truest knowledge that a man ever has, knowledge of himself as God knows him. Uh, William Ames uh, the uh, English uh, Puritan minister defined the conscience as a man's judgment of himself according to God's judgment of him. Dave, David Dixon, this is a, he's an uh, uh, Edinburgh uh, professor. He elaborates, he says, Conscience, as it doth respect ourselves, is the understanding power of our souls, examining how matters do stand betwixt God and us, comparing his will revealed with our state condition and carriage in thoughts, words, or deeds done or omitted and passing judgment thereupon as the case requires. So conscience expresses the moral consciousness or self-knowledge that we have under God and in his presence of having done right or wrong. So it involves a practical judgment. That is to say that especially in Puritan thought, the conscience operated according to what they called a, it's a syllogistic format. Well, what exactly is that uh, format? Three parts, the proposition, the assumption, and the conclusion. The proposition was the standard that was to be used, okay, arising out of, of course, for the, for the believer, it should be arising out of God's revealed will and his word. So you have the standard, and then there's the assumption. The assumption was the person's measure of himself against the declared standards, so the individual compares the action in question with the proposition and, the, and then renders a judgment of the action based on that comparison. And then lastly, there's the conclusion when a sentence is passed on one's action that is based on the previous judgment. And that sentence would then produce either joy or hope or gloom and despair. For example, you have an unbeliever who has a conscience. All men and women do. When based upon the testimony of Scripture, an unbeliever should reason in this way. The proposition that the person that lives in sin will die. The assumption, I live in sin. The conclusion, therefore, I what? I will die. Right? So they're saying that's how the conscience sort of works. You have a standard, 
and then you examine yourself against the standard, and then you arrive at the conclusion, right? Okay, now if you, that same individual hears the gospel message and embraces the gospel, then his conscience should function as follows. The proposition is this, whoever believes in Christ will not die but live. The assumption, I believe in Christ. The conclusion, I will not die but live. So operating in this sort of syllogistic fashion, the conscience passes judgment, and it does so with authority, like a divine court where it serves as witness, accuser, judge, and executioner, sometimes with a great voice. Uh, the, the, the Puritans described it as the lion's roar in some cases. Or like a spiritual, a spiritual nervous system, the pain of guilt informing our understanding that something is wrong and needs correction, Of course, we would do wise, right, to pay attention to the pain because guilt neglected means eventual destruction. Luther said this, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And by using the word safe, Luther emphasized the danger to a person's soul when they violate or they ignore their conscience. Again, the conscience itself is not the lawgiver. Or the standard, it is the thing that discerns and demands compliance with the perceived standard. That standard might be the word of God for a particular individual, or for them it might be government regulations or rules, expectations set by parents or employers, spouses, friends, church leaders. It might be standards that a person has acquired from their own experience. It could be from traditions that they've formulated from past uh, experience in their life, ideals, gray areas, or it could be a combination of any number of those things. That is to say, the conscience is not a belief system. It is simply the mechanism that acts upon a person's belief system. When that belief system or its standards are violated, guilt will kick in even if a person's beliefs are not biblically informed. So that means... That if you were taught growing up that you should always clean your plate at supper and you don't, your conscience will be activated. If you were taught that only one Bible translation was used by the Apostle Paul, (laughs) then listening to a Bible teacher who uses a different one will activate your conscience. For that matter, if you are a Buddhist and you violate some kind of Buddhist ceremony, you will experience real guilt. So this is, this is the thing. You have, you have to remember this, that the conscience, your conscience is like an alarm system that detects. You might say it's, it's like it's detecting an intruder with its sensors and then activates the siren to motivate us to action. The alarm, right? The, si- the, 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 the horn goes off. And it forces, we stop, we look at it, and then the next question, what, what do we need to do, right? If that were a weather alert, right? It would, it's the, the whole purpose of it is to move us to something. And when we think or we plot or we choose or we say something that is in violation of our belief system, our conscience detects that and judges those things. And in that, it is a discerner. It is a discerner. It testifies and it bears witness, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. What does he mean? What he means is that Gentiles or non-Jews do not have the law of Moses. They do not have the special revelation of God as the Jews do. And yet, according to the previous chapter in Romans, they do have some knowledge of God. They do know of his eternal power and divine nature, though they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But here's something else they do. They establish their own laws and guidelines and rules and standards, which they never perfectly keep. And when they omit things that they should do, according to their own standards, not God's revealed law or the Mosaic code, but even the ones that they've established, when they omit things they should do, they 
guilty. When they do things that they should avoid, they are guilty. And when they do, at times, meet the standard, they are approved in their conscience. The alarm doesn't go off, right? Like if they believe a standard, even though it's not a biblical standard, and then they actually comply in their conduct with their standard, the alarm doesn't go off, right? Now, again, we're not saying that's ideal, right? Because we would want to inform their conscience with biblical truth, right? So that that's, that's, that's calibrated. So it's, but, but Paul's point is this. They do not have the law written. That's not what he says. They do not have the law written in their hearts. That's only true of a believer. But they have the work of the law written in their hearts. They have this dynamic inscribed there. This inescapable principle that proves their guilt as well as their need for atonement. So they, they feel guilty, right? Even though they don't have biblical standards because they cannot keep their own standards. So all it does is just say, may, you could have whatever standard you want to have, but you're going to not keep it. Which brings up a very important question. What are you going to do about that? Even if it's not a biblical standard, what are you going to do about that guilt? Right? Does that point to something? Is there a judge? Is there a day of reckoning? <laughs> so I'm just saying, that's what Paul's getting at. He's just saying that in this, this is actually like a, a, a condemning thing when it comes to the Jews. Because he's saying, listen, you guys have the law and you won't admit your need. You keep trying to like bring yourself up, keep all these things and, and self-atone and, and not live for the Lord and not, not turn to Christ and all this kind of stuff. He's saying, but you know what? The Gentiles, they actually have this very same sort of dynamic going on with their conscience and that they set up their own standards, but they can't even keep their own standards and they have to deal with guilt. It's very, very important to understand. This is the operation of the conscience. It nails people down based upon their knowledge and their subsequent conduct. It may, Paul says here, it may accuse, it may condemn, or it may excuse and defend. That is its work. It makes a value judgment and either condemns or confirms our behavior. It's not only a discerner, it's also an afflictor. That is to say, it makes us uncomfortable and miserable when we sin, whether it's a fear of exposure, a fear of God's judgment, a sense of embarrassment, or the experience of some kind of physical discomfort or pain. Psalm 32, this is King David very likely describing the period in his life that started with his adultery with Bathsheba. Psalm 32.3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I mean, you've been out in the hot sun recently. You know, you're just like out there and you're just like, it's just wearing you out. David's like, that's what it did. When, I, when my, con- my conscience was afflicting me, I was not taking what I knew about my sin to the Lord. And in that season, it was like I was sitting out in South Georgia, just baking in the sun. That, my spiritual vitality was just completely wasting away. That's what we're talking about when we refer to the affliction of the conscience. John Flavel says this, what should have been the sinner's curb on earth becomes the sinner's whip in eternity. H.L. Mencken said it even in, in an even more vivid way. <laughs> he said, the conscience is the mother-in-law whose visit never ends. That's probably going a little too far. <laughs> Is my mother-in-law in here anywhere? That's, yeah, that's, she's second service. Woo, second Bible study. Don't tell her I said that. <clears throat> it's not the case in our family. But you get the point, right? A person can have a good, a blameless, and a clear conscience, a conscience that is informed by Scripture, a conscience that is free from guilt and judges their actions as acceptable, or the opposite of that. A person can have a conscience that will not allow them to conceal their sins or elude accusation. Like an involuntary third party, it will speak. Again, this is from Richard Sibbs. There is no friend so good as a good conscience. There is no foe so ill as a bad conscience. It makes us either kings or slaves. A man that hath a good conscience that witnesseth well for him. It raiseth his heart in a princely manner above all things in the world. A man that has a bad conscience, though he be a monarch, it makes him a slave. A bad conscience embitters all things in the world to him, though they never... 
they be never so comfortable in themselves. What is so comfortable as the presence of God? What is so comfortable as the light? And yet a bad conscience that will not be ruled, it hates the light, hates the presence of God. As we see Adam, when he sinned, he fled from God. A bad conscience cannot joy in the midst of joy. It is like a gouty foot or a gouty toe covered with a velvet shoe. <laughs> Love the way these guys write. Alas, what doth it ease? What doth glorious apparel ease the diseased body? Nothing at all. The ill is within the arrow sticks there. Sadly, what many people do when that happens, they try to ignore it. They try to silence it. Rather than responding to the alarm, they try to cut the wire or remove the batteries or plug their ears to deafen the annoying siren. Maybe it doesn't seem that dramatic at first. It's like that thing. It goes off, and I mean, you're just like, you know, it's like, if that had happened in church, it's just like all these people would be like rushing to grab their, but I say people do that with their conscience. It starts to tell them, hey, something's wrong, and then they, 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 they grab it so fast, and, and their thing is not to pay attention to what it's telling them. Their thing is to just be quiet. Turn that thing off, right? I mean, initially, like I said, it's not, it's not always obvious and dramatic in their life. They just rationalize what they're doing. They get a little defensive, or they look to blame others. The person says to himself that he is the exception and not the rule. In very small increments, reality gets distorted, indulging in whatever it is that is violating their conscience, that diminishes their capacity to understand truth and to know God. They reject a good conscience, not addressing the contradiction between their sinful choices and their profession of faith. Paul warned Timothy about this subtle collapse. It was already happening in the lives of some of those that were at the church at Ephesus. 1 Timothy 1, verse 18, Paul says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made, Concerning you that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Eventually, what can happen is that a person desensitizes their conscience by repeated sinning and rationalization. He just continues until he doesn't feel guilty anymore. Maybe he masks over the guilt with chemicals or pills. Maybe he works to build up a good self-image. But here's the frightening thing. If you lose the sensitivity, you lose the protection. And hypocrisy leads to self-deception. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy and Titus. 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says to Timothy, the Spirit explicitly says that in later, later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared. It's this, this, this word for, for branding. Seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared, shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Titus 1, verse 13, this testimony is, tr- is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but they're both their mind and their conscience are defiled. It's this, this sort of, um, uh, this, this, this term for to be stained. Verse 16, they profess, notice the discrepancy. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they do what? Deny Him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good thing. This is where it leads. A place where someone calls what is good evil and what is evil good. What we need is a good conscience, which is to be free from unconfessed sin. Freedom from unconfessed sin. That's a good conscience. Free from guilt. J.I. Packer in his book, In Quest for Godliness, he says this, A good conscience is a tender conscience. The consciences of the godless may be so callous that they scarcely ever act at all, but the healthy Christian conscience, said the Puritans, is constantly in operation, listening for God's voice in his word, seeking to discern his will in everything, active in self-watch and self-judgment. So just to be clear, we're not talking about excessive introspection. We're not talking about some sort of gloomy self-absorption in your life. We're talking about a situation where a Christian distrusts his own heart and his own wisdom where he understands the dangers of sin and Satan's tactics, where he regularly assesses himself before God, scrutinizing his deeds and motives, wanting to root out any moral deficiencies and dishonesty that might be present. 
We're talking about a Christian who trembles at God's word, who has a pervasive sense of God's presence, who has a constraining awareness of his obligations to the Lord, or you might say it this way, who has an eye toward pleasing Christ, because ultimately he must look away from himself and to Jesus. He must. This is another portion from Richard Sibbs. He said, A good conscience especially is an evangelical conscience. For a legal good conscience none have. That is, such a conscience as acquits a man that he hath obeyed the law in all things exactly. But an evangelical good conscience is that we must trust to. That is, such a conscience that though it knows itself guilty of sin, yet it knows that Christ hath shed his blood for sinners. And such a conscience as by means of faith is sprinkled with the blood of Christ and is cleared from the accusations of sin. The blood of Christ outcries our sins. The guilty conscience for sin cries, guilty, guilty hell, damnation, wrath, and anguish. But the blood of Christ cries, I say mercy, because it was shed by our surety in our behalf. His obedience is a full satisfaction in God. Now, the way to have a good conscience is upon the accusations of an evil conscience by the law to come to Christ our surety and to get our consciences sprinkled by faith in his blood to get a persuasion that he, he shed his blood for us and upon that to labor to be purged by the Spirit. These, there, there are two purgers, the blood of Christ from the guilt of sin and the Spirit of Christ from the stain of sin. And upon that comes a complete good conscience, being justified by the blood of Christ and sanctified by the Spirit of Christ. Therefore, Christ came not by blood alone, but by water, water and blood, by blood and justification, by water and sanctification and holiness of life. There it is the fruit of sanctification and holiness that rests upon the promise of the gospel. In other words, first, every sinner must have their conscience cleansed from dead works through faith in the blood of Christ, tells us uh, Hebrews 9. That is his justification, his standing, when upon faith he is declared righteous before a holy God. But then what always proceeds from that is God's work through that individual as God implants and stimulates certain graces that do not exist in the lives of unbelievers. Sanctified affections. An attraction to that which is good and a love for particular things, namely a love for God demonstrated by obeying Him, a love for holiness demonstrated by killing sin, and a love for Christians demonstrated by showing compassion. These are the evidences of the new birth and new life. So we sensitize our consciences towards sin. We strive to maintain a clear conscience before the Lord through a careful and informed response to biblical truth. We ask God to search our hearts. We watch over our hearts with all diligence, Proverbs 4.23. We understand that the word is given to instruct our consciences, and our consciences are given so that we might live in subjection to the word. These things go together, which is what a good conscience promotes, right? Scriptural obedience and scriptural liberty rather than legalism or carelessness regarding sin. Because in reality, a good conscience finds the greatest liberty, which is the liberty to obey God. That's our liberty. It's a liberty to pursue God. It's a liberty to obey Him, despite the opposition. So again, this is such a critical part of our lives uh, as believers. Uh, it's, 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 it's a necessary key to godly living. Let's just end with maybe thinking of uh, just, just, just some of the ap- implications of this doctrine. Let me just mention a few. First is this. Unbelievers need a clean conscience. Unbelievers need a clean conscience. Hebrews 10.22. Maybe that's you here this morning. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're running from the Lord. Rebelling in your conscience. Restless. Without peace and joy. Let me mention Sibs here for the last time. Therefore, God, out of his love, hath put conscience into the soul that we might keep a court at home. Let conscience, therefore, do its worst now. Let it accuse, let it judge, and when it hath judged, let it smite us and do execution upon us, that having judged ourselves, we may not be condemned with the world. If we suffer not conscience to have its full work now, it will have it one day. A sleepy conscience will not always sleep. If we do not for conscience to awake here, it awake it will awaken in hell where there is no remedy. 
So if that's you, you're, just, you're running from these things. There's this, this lack of peace, lack of joy. There's this inconsistency. There's this gross hypocrisy. You've been covering up these things. Nobody around you knows. You've been struggling for days, weeks, and years, but with no, n- n- not settling the issue. I'm just saying don't, don't delay. <laughs> don't wait. Repent and believe the promise of the gospel that by grace you do not er- need to earn your way to God because Christ earned your way for you. And if you're saved because, because you know that the lost need a clean conscience, make sure to hold out that hope when you share the gospel. It's one of the greatest parts of the gospel message that Christ covers our guilt and shame. And when you are witnessing, don't forget about the fact that that person who needs the Lord has this God-given faculty. Nathaniel Vincent in his work Heaven Upon Earth said this, This conscience, when awakened, will deal plainly with the greatest. Conscience is not to be escaped. We can no more fly from conscience than we can run away from ourselves. It is, the Puritans would say this, the conscience is, this, is God's spy in our bosoms. It is God's sergeant that he employs to arrest the sinner. It is there constantly reminding man of his duties as a human created in God's image. And so appeal to it by truth, without shame. Also, regarding your daily life, your daily walk, a careful watchfulness of your conscience is an integral part of your Christian life. So remember to pay attention to it. Let it serve as a guard in your life. Be careful not to dismiss it. Be careful not to muffle it. Nacelli and Crowley in their book on the conscience writes this, quote, feeding excuses to your conscience is like feeding pills to a watchdog. What is the watchdog there for? It's there for your protection. And when you, you try to silence the conscience in your life, it's like you're giving your watchdog sleeping pills. It's, like it's, 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 it's to your own detriment. So when you sin, and this might just be a real practical thing, when you sin, do not ignore that moment after effect. The longer you wait, the more the mental justifications and diversions make mask the noise of the conscience. Be quick to acknowledge your sin to the Lord, to turn from it. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. It's a promise. Seek the Lord's forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Justice has been served. Pardon is... Is available. Allow your burdened conscience to propel you in godly sorrow back to Jesus. I love what Robert Murray McShane said in this vein. McShane was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor from the 19th century who was most known for the annual Bible reading plan that he developed that many people, maybe some of you use uh, even today. We, we, we know how he worked through Scripture so diligently, but in this brief excerpt of a, of a letter that he wrote to his friend, George Shaw, we get a sense of how the scripture worked through McShane, his love for Christ and his pursuit of holiness. This is what he says. He encouraged his friend with this. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace in all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and repose in his almighty arms. I would also suggest you celebrate your conscience. Again, it needs to be fine-tuned. You can do that through the right interpretation of Scripture and diligent application of every truth learned. You do it through the fear of the Lord and the worship of God, through seeking wise counsel and through the practice of godly decision-making over time. And in your battle against sin, keep in mind that your greatest accountability partner is your conscience. It's not some lady in the church. It's not some friend in the church. It's not some other believer. It's not some small group. It's not even necessarily your spouse, although they serve as an accountability partner. What I'm saying is your greatest accountability partner is your conscience. You can keep secrets from your spouse. You can keep secrets from your family. You can lie to another Christian who's trying to help you, but your conscience is God's domestic chaplain. It's another Puritan quote. 
and it is privy to and spying out everything you think, say, and do. So take advantage of that. Rather than try to silence that, take advantage of that. That you can be in another city away from everyone else, but if you claim to know Christ and you go to do something that is not pleasing to Christ, your conscience is going to be activated, even though no one else knows what's going on. Well, we go back to where we began with Richard Sibbs. We can do nothing well without joy and a good conscience, which is the ground of joy. Joseph Hall said it like this, Happy is that man that can be acquitted by himself in private, by others in public, and by God in both. The doctrine of conscience there's a lot more that could be said about it. I hope this has been helpful. Uh, some good resources if you're interested uh, and you want to do a little more research on this topic. I mentioned uh, Christopher Ash's book, Discovering the Joy of a Clear Conscience. Kevin DeYoung has a little tiny book called The Art of Turning. Uh, MacArthur's book, The Vanishing Con- Conscience. Uh, Nacelli's book, Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. Um, again, it's more critical than most people realize, but we need it. A good conscience. We cannot have joy without it. We cannot be useful without it. We cannot be loving without it. So may God give us a good conscience for him. Amen? All right, guys. Thank you for your time.